lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, but I still wonder most days, what does it mean really to be tempted? And so I've been listening to the way that you as a congregation, that we as a church have been using the word temptation over the past couple of years. And I've come after much deliberation and prayer and study to believe that temptation and the way we're using it must be mostly about desserts. One of the middle schoolers comes up to you in the atrium with a fundraiser for their band trip and asks you to buy an $18 box of turtles and you say yes. And they say, wouldn't you like the cheesecake? Because they have to have the money to go on their band trip. And you say, don't tempt me. When we're in the grocery store and we see our favorite ice cream on sale, we turn to somebody in the aisle as we put it in the cart and say, the price is just too low. It's too tempting. Couldn't resist. Somebody from work says they're going to go out to Dunkin' Donuts. Would you like anything? And you say, get behind me, Satan. Don't tempt me. Temptations at the surface level are things that we can laugh about, things that we can chuckle about, things that let us in to our shared frailty and human experience. They're things that we laugh about and that we should because they help us cope. Laughing to get about our temptations helps us cope with our shared human experience. So temptations can be funny at the surface level up to a point. Until the temptation drags us from the shallows into the deep end. And then we're not laughing anymore. We're troubled. We're ashamed. And in fact, we'd rather just not talk about it at all. When the employee learns how to fudge the expense report to pay his personal bills. When a father who's promised he'll never drink again. Hears the pint out in the tool shed in the chest. A tool chest in the shed calling out to him. When the young family finds a way to cheat on their taxes and thinks, who does it hurt anyway? When the woman whose husband is always at work gets a romantic text from a man who's been paying her more attention, we're not laughing anymore. And neither are they. Because like a current, the force of temptation has slowly pulled them from the shallows into the depths. If you had told any one of those people years ago that they would find themselves in this situation, they would have told you absolutely not. But day by day, week by week, year by year, they crossed lines they never knew they were crossing until they were far in the rear view mirror. We're not in the ice cream aisle anymore, are we? We're not talking about a few extra calories that we're going to have to burn off. We're talking about how we're going to use our choices. And what we're going to build our life around. That's where we pick up in today's text. Jesus has just gotten baptized. The heavens have opened. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. And a voice from heaven says, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And then the heavens shut. And Jesus gets out of the water. And still wet from baptism, the father leads Jesus into the desert to be tempted. Some people just take their kids out for lunch. You know, I've read this passage for years and years. And throughout my childhood, I've generally pictured this scene like something from a cartoon. The devil comes out to meet Jesus in the desert. He's red, he has horns and a pitchfork and a tail. But if we turn this into a cartoon, we miss how temptation actually works, how subtle it actually is. 
Satan didn't come into the desert trying to get Jesus to live like the devil. He didn't come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I've got a deck of cards and some tequila in the chariot. That wouldn't work on Jesus. He comes to Jesus and invites him to something pretty simple. He says, turn these stones into bread. That doesn't sound to me like too bad of a thing. Take a dip into the shallows, Jesus. Jesus is just starting his ministry. He's not done a miracle in public. He's not healed anybody. He's not turned water into wine. Why not just have a dry run of the desert? You know, do a miracle before you have an audience. Besides, he's hungry. He's been in the wilderness for 40 days and this isn't something that would hurt anybody. It's just a little bit of bread. Why doesn't he do it? But he doesn't. And so Satan moves on to his next idea. He takes Jesus for a night on the town and leads him to the top of the temple and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. If Jesus is after public credibility, this would be a great opportunity for him. Nobody has discovered Jesus yet. He hasn't called his first disciples. He hasn't done anything resembling public ministry. The devil is offering Jesus a really great opportunity to begin his ministry with a spectacle that would attract disciples far and wide. It's convenient. It builds credibility. It can be justified with a Bible verse. Why not do it? And yet Jesus doesn't. And so Satan takes Jesus up to a high mountain and the text says, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and says, all this I will give to you if you'll bow down and worship me. The Son of God having a little bit more political power, frankly, seems really appealing to me. Bring on the fight against corrupt and unjust systems like the world has never seen. And after all, nobody actually needs to know. Jesus could bend the knee, get the kingdoms, go on about his way, ruling over the earth, and no one would ever have to know that he bent his knee to Satan to get there. Never acknowledge him again. We're not in the ice cream aisle anymore, are we? This isn't the kind of temptation you can brush off with a chuckle because this, like all temptation that pulls us into the depths, isn't just a choice about stones or bread, just like ours isn't ultimately a choice about income tax or the websites we visit when nobody's looking. This temptation of Jesus, just as any temptation you and I face, is about the kind of person we're becoming and what we're building our life around. And if we, were, if we knew when we were facing it, we'd probably be a little bit more alert. If the devil came to you and me, even as weak as you and I are, looking like the devil, we'd turn to each other and we'd say, watch out, here comes the devil. And we'd know that we were about to be tricked. The challenge is that the devil almost never comes looking like the devil. The devil most often comes to us looking like something we really want and are convinced that God wants us to have. You know this, don't you? There's not a habit of sin that you've gotten into that you meant to get entangled in at first. It was just one choice followed by another choice followed by another choice until there came a moment that you realized that the things that you had gotten into had gotten into you and you were powerless to get out of them. Satan's best strategy with us is the one that he, that he uses on Jesus. The ones that he used on the first humans in the garden were tempted usually with the same couple questions. Wouldn't you like to be like God? 
Doesn't God want you to be happy? And most of us, like our first parents in the garden, hear that question and think, yes, I want to be like God. Isn't that what church is all about? Isn't that what we're here for? Don't we believe that God wants to give us good gifts? Doesn't God want me to be happy? He must be. He must be okay with this. I know I am. And so in the attempt to be like God, we begin to allow things into our life, into our personality, into our dreams, into our vision of what normal life looks like that God doesn't endorse. It's not because we're not sincere and it isn't because we don't love God, but you know as well as I do that it's possible to sincerely intend to obey God even as our hearts are set on things that his heart is not set on. We say we want to live a life that emerges from intimacy with God and yet slowly we adjust our vision of what God requires of us so that we can go to sleep at night without admitting that the center of our life has changed. Instead of our whole life emerging from an altar, a place of focus on the holiness, on the calling, on the mission of God, we ask God to bless us as we set about building our own empire, chasing the things that we really want. Although we're worse at resisting Satan than Jesus was, I think Satan pretty often comes to us with the same three temptations that he came to Jesus with. The first of which is we're tempted with ways of caring for our needs that don't rely on God. Satan says to Jesus, turn these stones into bread. The Israelites say to Aaron, build us an image of a God who will lead us and protect us. Moses brought us out of Egypt, but nobody knows what happened to him. Our Old Testament passage today comes just a little bit after the Israelites wondering where Moses is, wondering where God is, choose to build a golden calf and call it their God. And when I've read this in the past, I've always thought this was really ridiculous until I come face to face with the things that you and I reach for when God's not coming through. All of us can probably think of a time when we sincerely desire to worship God, but our fear, fear of scarcity Scarcity of money, scarcity of love, scarcity of friendship drove us to grasp onto something nearby that felt solid and nail our life down to it. When we worry about not having enough money, we're vulnerable to the temptation to build our life around accumulating wealth. When we worry that we're not desirable, we're vulnerable to the temptation to engage in sexual behaviors that either objectify others or try to please them in order to earn love. When we worry that we won't be loved if we admit a mistake, we're vulnerable to the temptation to value our reputation above our repentance. We don't admit we're wrong. We don't ask for forgiveness. And we don't change our mind because we think people would reject us if we didn't perform perfectly. When we worry people won't want to be friends with us, we're vulnerable to the temptation to clutch and grab and feel possessive of the friends that we have and make up stories about how left out we are and resent other people for going on about their life, telling ourselves that we're rejected when we've never actually initiated with the friends that we feel are rejecting us. In our country, there are whole industries built around these things, reminding us constantly of our needs for intimacy or for friendship or for money and leading us to believe that all we have to do is buy their product or view their content or purchase their subscription and we'll finally be fulfilled. So we do it. 
we eat and we watch and we buy and it even helps sometimes. And so in the short time that our last purchase is helping, we say, isn't this what God wants? Doesn't God want me to be happy? We may not be melting down our earrings to build a statue, but all of us sooner or later finding ourselves desiring to worship God when in fact we're bending our knee to the icons of the empire. We're longing and hoping to have our identity be wrapped up in being the people of God, but we're still, if we're honest, making our way out of depending on the gods of Egypt that don't have any power, but are at least feel real enough to touch. If we can't know for sure that God is with us, we'll rely on something else to take its place. We're not in the ice cream aisle anymore, are we? The second temptation we we find is to look for ways of vying for credibility. Throw yourself off the temple and let the angels catch you, says Satan. And who could blame Jesus if he did? I think if I was Jesus's PR manager, I'd say, go for it, man. You know, I just like a little credibility in my religion, if I'm being honest, you know? I like to be part of a winning team. Every time there's some like, famous celebrity or a Harvard-trained economist or something that converts to Christianity, I say, thank God we're getting a little bit of help around here. (laughs) Because if I'm honest, there's part of me that doesn't want to feel like an unsophisticated person. I don't want to feel taken in. I don't want to feel duped by religion. What I'd really like, to be honest, sometimes is to have a religion that's verifiable, that takes up a little bit of space in my life, and really... Fundamentally, what I'd like to do is to be able to be saved while being respected by my non-religious peers. Is that so much to ask? But if I take a dip into the, into the deeper end of the pool here, I'll confess to you that sometimes I want God's work to be obvious because sometimes the work God's doing just seems so slow. There are places in the world right now that some of us have been following in the news over the past several weeks where God seems to be moving really fast right now. And there are moments when I've prayed, God, do that here. And God's whispered back to me, don't you see the ways that I'm bringing new life all around you? Don't you see people being transformed, people orienting their life around new things slowly over years? People in this church have become fundamentally different in ways that have made them new. And I say, what I meant, God, was do it louder. <laughs> we don't, I don't always want a quiet Messiah who serves and heals. I want a God who does things that I can point to and say, there it is. Only God could have done that. And then I start to realize, at least I have over the past week, that what I'm trying to do is to measure the kingdom of God by Pharaoh's metrics. Jesus didn't. Jesus had crowds around him all the time, but the work that he seemed to care about the most was with 12 people, only 11 of whom actually turned out. You read through the Gospels and you see all kinds of sort of passive verbs from Jesus. It says Jesus withdrew, Jesus prayed, Jesus went into a garden, Jesus went into somebody's house. And if you read the Gospels, you start to realize that Jesus didn't need that many eyes on him to feel seen. How about you? How about me? The third temptation we face is to find ways of gaining power. 
The text says, again, the devil took Jesus up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said, all this I'll give to you if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, no. I'm not going to dwell on this a whole lot uh, this morning, but I think it's worth mentioning that God owns the nations already. No matter what side of the political spectrum we fall on, I notice within us as the church over the past several years, a rising tide of defensiveness and tension and the way that we talk with and about each other, even maybe especially in the body of Christ around politics. And so in the name of God, we have acted in ways that are below God. We have demeaned each other. We have categorized each other. We have rejected each other. We have dismissed and put down people that God has placed in our life and our communities for us to learn from. And so you already know this, but I'll say it anyway. If our cause is righteous, but we've trampled on our neighbor to achieve it, we lose. Not because we won't achieve the political objective, but because we have lived a life that God will not bless. A bad means is a bad end. But this isn't just about politics, actually. That's a sad thing. If that was it, we could just sort of move on. On a smaller scale, many of us who work within organizations and all of us who work within families build our lives around power in some ways. If we have power, we try to keep it. If we feel we don't have power, we can build our identity on throwing around suspicion of those who do. We cut others down and have sideways conversations behind people's back. We angle for promotions. We cut corners in our projects and grumble about being overworked. We feel above doing menial work and angle for more important things to do. And we make sure every good thing we do gets noticed by someone in charge. We baptize our ambition in the name of God and climb over others to get to the top in Jesus's name. We may get promoted. We may be recognized as a good Christian worker. But make no mistake, we've lost. Because a bad means is a bad end. Well, if the sermon ended now, I think all I'd do is just sort of make you sad before brunch. So we probably ought to keep going. There's actually good news in both of these passages. And the good news is in God's prescription for people like us who, while we sincerely intend to worship God, have gotten caught up in the values of the empire. I was reading through the text this week, wondering, sort of how, how is God going to deliver people from this kind of thing? And I was relieved that he doesn't give the Israelites five quick tips for getting their values straight or invite people to take on some sort of self-improvement plan that'll help them connect with God, he says, if you're willing, build an altar. Build a place that I can meet with you. And God goes on to give detailed blueprints in Exodus. You heard some of them this morning. Detailed blueprints that mirror the seven days of creation and are full of imagery from the Garden of Eden so the people know that the altar isn't just a thing to look at or perform rituals around. The altar is a place to be touched by God in a way that shapes and reshapes and reforms how you see everything 
from creation to your neighbor to that sin that you just can't shake. The altar is a thin place between heaven and earth, a set-apart place to do business with God. But ultimately, the point of the altar was never coming to the altar. The point of the altar and coming to it is to learn what God's voice sounds like, what God's work looks like, and to find our habits and our relationships and our attitudes touched by the conviction and the holiness and the otherness of God so we can know that we're drop-dead wrong if we ever think that God can be used as a prop for our own advantage. The point of coming to the altar, in other words, is for the altar to follow you home. This is why Jesus could resist temptation in the desert. Growing up, my Sunday school teacher said that Jesus resisted temptation in the desert because he had a lot of scripture memorized. And we should memorize scripture. Even as we remember that the devil has more scripture memorized than you and I ever do. The thing to remember is not just memorizing the scripture. The thing to remember is that the point of coming to the altar is to know the God behind the altar. The altar isn't just a place to look at. Neither is the Bible. The altar and the Bible are places to look through. Jesus shook temptation, not just because he knew the Bible, but because he knew the heart of God. Because his life emerged from the center of the altar. Jesus wasn't trying to build an empire and baptize it, although he would have been a very good king, I'm quite sure, and will be, and is. The point of Jesus's life and the way that he was able to loose himself from the temptation that the devil was throwing his way is because he knew what he was. He knew who he was. He knew whose he was. And his life emerged, flowed, emanated from a grounded center of conviction at the altar. Jesus resisted the devil in the desert because he knew that he was building an altar, not an empire. I think most of us end up being faced with the same question as Jesus was in the desert this morning. What are you building with your life? Just a couple weeks ago was Ash Wednesday and we heard the words ashes to ashes, dust to dust, as ashes were imposed on the foreheads of the oldest members of our church and the very youngest members of our church. And I was struck as I saw people coming to the altar that no matter whether they were in their early life or their middle life or their later life, they were all faced with the same short amount of time, the same reality that there is only a short amount of time in our life where we decide what we're gonna build. And so the question we're left with this morning is the same one that the Israelites and Jesus were faced with, with this brief time, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. What'll it be? An altar or an empire? If you build an empire, you'll focus on how much you can accumulate for yourself. But if you build an altar, you'll focus on how much you can give away. If you build an empire, you'll read your Bible for inspiration and then set off doing what you wanted to do. If you build an altar, your Bible will read you back. 
you'll find yourself surprised and delighted and challenged by the God behind the scripture, planting through the scripture in your heart, new seeds of love that are watered year over year over year over year. So you begin to love people you couldn't love. You begin to forgive people you couldn't forgive. You begin to see the world differently and point your life and your habits and your dispositions and your resources in different directions. If you build an empire, you'll ask God to join you in getting your things done. If you build an altar, you'll join God in getting his things done. If you build an empire, you'll hide behind God to justify why you're right about your politics, about the way you spend your money. You'll, you'll use God as a defense as to why you shouldn't change your mind. But if you build an altar, the Holy Spirit will convict you about the parts of your personality that God simply does not share and invite you into new ways, fresh ways, generous ways of giving the life that you previously clutched to away to others. One phrase that was repeated throughout the text this morning, you heard it, is God invited those with generous hearts. Some other texts say Moses asked those of God's people who were willing That text has been such a a slap in the face to me over the course of the past week because I've started to realize that what Moses is identifying is the same thing that we can identify in ourselves, that there are those of us, many of us, who while we've opted in to relationship with God, would choose to use that relationship with God to justify us. that there are those of us who have opted into a relationship with God who have still not opted into a life at the altar. So really, this may not even be a question of whether or not you get to heaven. This may be a question of whether or not you've built the kind of habits that'll help you like it there. I want to be clear that we could choose to build an empire. And when we die, our families will probably probably be able to recruit a minister who will speak at our funeral and help us sound like saints. But you and I will know, won't we? That there were choices along the way. Lines that we didn't know we were crossing. Invitations from God to become a certain kind of person that we said no to because the cost was just too high. Those of us who have come to church have been invited for a long time, I think, to use our lives to build an altar. But many of us have quietly, in ways that no one else knows, been busy building something else. Man, I hope to God that this church could be a place full of people who build their life into an altar. That this church is a place where people confess early and often. That this church is the kind of place where grudges go to die. That this church can be a community sent into our city to do good without worrying about who gets the credit. I hope whatever pastor in this church does your funeral is shocked by the number of people who crawl out of the woodwork who say, this person blessed me and we never knew it. We've had enough of hidden sin. We need some hidden holiness.